thank God for the time in the Word. Dear Lord, we're grateful. Keep us faithful to what you've said through your apostles. Keep us growing as, as we ought, that our Christian lives would be a testimony to the grace of your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen. Last week we were in First, Second Timothy 1. It's one of those circumstances where I didn't pick Second Timothy 1 because I was going to do a series on Second Timothy, but because I was interested in what Second Timothy 1 said. But then there I was this morning looking at the beginning of a book covered last week, so why not do chapter 2? That was sort of the, the drive. But chapter 2 of 2 Timothy is, is it the rapture? Okay, so does anybody know whose that is or where? Is it, is it my offspring? It's my descendant, not my offspring. Thank you. in trouble now. Okay. Um, somehow, we, uh, when we get to 2 Timothy 2, it's one of those passages that um, is vague. Um, it even hangs itself out there as vague, like intentionally vague. And consequently, what we do with it becomes important. Now, I want you to remember that in chapter 1, right at the top of the left-hand column, I have a verse from chapter 1, um, verse 13. Follow the pattern of the sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the truth that has been entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That was an admonition in chapter 1. And then at the beginning of chapter 2, you have this, verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's that element in both cases of the, basically saying the kind of life we've been called to, be faithful in that and entrust it. I entrusted it to you. You are going to entrust it to others. The, the first uh, chapter thing is the truth has been entrusted to you. You are going to entrust it to faithful men who will in turn be able to teach others also. So we know that there's going to be some kind of path, some path, kind of path that takes what is thought by, in this case, the apostle, and offers it into the hands of another, and by hope, by instruction, that is going to be faithfully passed on. Now, you know perfectly well that most of the time it wasn't. Most of Christendom just did not believe what the apostles believed. But I saw some things in this that were... Um, switch the message to one of sin. I don't believe in original sin, but sometimes the arguments are hard to resist. 
Um, what's interesting about this is elements that are the way, or the parts of the instruction. The instruction is, you be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's what you ought to be. There was a warning at the end of that passage in chapter 1 about Phygelus and Hermogenes, people being led astray, the household of Anasphorus. And he then comes back to Timothy. You, no, you be strong in the grace. You, what is the nature of the thing to which we are called? Uh, in the book we wrote on marriage, which I'm not talking about this morning, it's helpful to define what you're attempting. You need to know what it is. You can't just say, I'm a Christian. Well, what do you mean by that? You talk to a Mormon, it means something entirely different than it means to a Baptist. So what do you mean? The grace that is in Christ Jesus. What is it doing? If you're supposed to be strong in it, you've got to know what that is. And part of it is going to be, you know, I don't think pointedly so, but it's in this verse, the next verse, and what you have heard from me, and what you have heard, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me before many witnesses and trust to faithful men. So it's saying the, the elements I'm asking you to do is in what I have been teaching and you've heard it from me, so not only remind yourself of what that is so that you would be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, but you're supposed to have that cobbled together into a body of thought that says, this is what St. Paul taught when he was teaching. Now, I don't want you to miss this. It's in bold. Before many witnesses. Now, sometimes people come over to my house. Sometimes. Middle of the day sometimes that they don't want to run into anyone else. And they want to sit there and talk with me of things unthinkable. Things that are speculative. Things that are supposals. Things about that would get them burned at the stake at an earlier and better time. And I'm sure St. Paul with his friends, his fellow travelers as he and Timothy are walking down the road in Central Asia Minor that he would look at Timothy and go you know I was wondering you know and then say something really weird well he doesn't want Timothy to be running to the pulpit in the next church they visit and saying you know St. Paul said a really weird thing last week just to me no it's the stuff I taught before many witnesses. This is what I cover when all the church is there to be edified. So many people have heard this. And that is what I want you to put together. It will probably reflect directly the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because you want to give it to faithful men who will in turn give it to faithful men. Able to teach others. The whole idea is the fidelity to the thing, not the procedure. We don't want churches following this procedure if they don't know what the grace is that we have in Christ Jesus. We don't want this if it's not 
what is the main beneficial teaching of the apostles before many witnesses being passed on faithfully because you can hand that baton down through history with ease because it's a common knowledge and you just have to be sure that they're faithful. Now, what other hidden, we're looking at hidden things because some of the elements in this, I know there are debates that could be had about some of these passages. I think we're warned about that a little later in the passage, but there are some elements that when, when he tells Timothy to entrust to faithful men, um, you basically know that what we preach will go on if we preach, if we preach. You know, when it says, how can they call upon him whom they've not believed, and how can they believe unless they hear, and how can they hear unless a preacher is sent? So this instruction is basically saying, if you don't do it, if you don't find the thing, if you don't find what the grace is in Christ Jesus, and know what the centerpieces of the apostolic teaching were so that you can pass it on to the next generation, your children, your friends, those that come to a Bible study at your house, whatever it is, you know what the faithful teaching is of the apostles. If you don't, it won't. There's no guarantee. You ever see that verse in the Gospels where Christ is bemoaning the situation? He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You never thought that there would be no Christianity. You know, we have other views of the end times. One of them is kind of pessimistic, which is dispensationalism, which says, you know, it gets worse and worse. The Antichrist shows up. Christians start getting their heads chopped off and arrested, etc. You know, persecution like in the Roman times. Bad, bad times, Antichrist times. Seven years tribulation, the end. Then there are other Christians that are more optimistic, post-millennial. Gets better and better. The gospel goes out, people believe it until 95% or more of the world is actually saved. I have yet to hear, and I'm willing to offer it this morning, the possibility that no one not just a persecuted minority by the secular, but nobody, a Christian in the world. Only because Christ considered that as a possibility. I'm not saying that is the thing, but keep it in mind, folks, because you knowing what the grace of Jesus Christ is, and you knowing what the apostles taught in the main, it's amazing to me we were talking last night. There was a group over last night, wasn't there? The Whites. Mike, Mike, were you over? No, Brian was over. Brendan O'Donnell, Donnelly was over, and some others. It was a filled room. And we were talking briefly about that hideous strength and how people look at... Allison was sharing about how in high school the Christian usage of that hideous strength was to show the state of the secular, basically. How do you, this war against the bad people of NICE and how prescient C.S. Lewis was. But it was interesting that 
People who do that with that hideous strength don't offer Ransom's answer. They say C.S. Lewis was a prophet when it came to saying what the world was up to, but he was not giving us good directions about how to deal with it. It is very frequent that people don't spot, Christians don't spot, what is looking at them off the page. The way that Ransom dealt with the world was different than the way the church who wants to fight the culture war wants to deal with the world. What people think the apostles taught is not necessarily what the apostles taught. And the warning here is if we don't teach it, it won't get taught. It won't get passed on. It's like if I don't entrust it, what I taught you, Timothy, you teach others who will teach others, is a dependence of the passage of teaching. And if people are not faithful in knowing the right message and not faithful in doing this, it isn't going to happen. Then it gets into some things that are vague. Share in suffering, verse 3, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. <clears throat> no soldier on service gets entangled in civilian pursuit since his aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted him. That sounds, you know, like good advice when it, the metaphor is worked out. An athlete not, is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Yes, another good metaphor and wisdom. Don't cheat. You can't win unless you don't cheat. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Yes, another bit of platitude, little, yeah, okay. Why are these three things just stacked up right there? Why is, you're told that, that if I serve another, uh, if I'm on active duty, say in Iraq, and I started a little business changing tires in downtown uh, whatever, Fallujah. And I've got a little side business running a Les Schwab dealership in Fallujah while I'm a, a stationed Marine. The Marines are going to look dimly on that. They're going to look, especially when you don't want bomb runs to be brought in on Fallujah that will destroy your Les Schwab dealership. Your, your concerns are divided. If you're in active service, no soldier on service gets entangled in civilian pursuits. It's not that civilians are bad. It's just that there's something else. A civilian is distinct from a soldier. I don't know if you are aware of that, but soldiers follow orders. They have somebody else guiding them. And when someone like Timothy is being told by Paul, don't get entangled, you might not want to get entangled because the one who enlisted you is... I don't know if he's talking about himself because he picked up Timothy and Lystra Derby back in the first missionary, second missionary journey. Is his aim to satisfy the one who enlisted him? And do it according to the rules because you won't get the crown if you don't do it according to the rules. No trophies. And the hard working, if you do it hard, you get paid first. Now what? Let's misinterpret those, shall we? Because those are, man, you could build a Christianity and an activity based on those three passages that is completely wrong. 
Have you ever run into Christians that are kind of uh, martial in their tone? It's more like a, a, a military unit. They could almost wear uniforms. Some groups like that. I mean, down what to the Nation of Islam with Louis Farrakhan. They're sort of uniformed in their kind of suits they wear. The navigators were always sort of based in the military and rooted in the military and had a more militaristic approach, at least to memorizing scripture. Now, you know, you can come up with all sorts of meanings to this. Now, what's interesting here to me is the next verse after it. Think over what I say, for the Lord will grant you understanding in everything. Ah, he doesn't tell me what it means. He threw truisms at me. Those metaphors are true applied to a lot of different things. But he means something, and he wants you, Timothy, to know what it is, and he wants Timothy to think about it. You could almost make a list of how many wrong ideas could I get from this passage. I just hope that your basic idea isn't one of those wrong ideas, that one you came up with or you live your life by. Is this the sort of thing that God is making in you? Think about it before you start saying something. That's the line I have on the side. Think about it, then pop off. That was a John Barry uh, quote. If anything, you would have to say, okay, this, this is supposed to be about the grace that we are called to in Christ Jesus. And it's supposed to be right down the middle of what Paul teaches before many witnesses. And what I can at least say before I get too far is that the first metaphor about the soldier, it's the one who enlisted you is war. You're there to satisfy the command and control of the one who enlisted you. You are not in charge anymore. That was always a big surprise in boot camp for many American lads in the early 70s. Um, they were surprised that somebody else was absolutely in charge and really didn't care. I was up on my feed last night for some reason. That scene out of Stripes came up. My name is Francis, but nobody better call me Francis or I would just kill you. And the sergeant says, lighten up, Francis, because that's the way it was. We don't care, they don't care anymore. They're doing something else with your life, and they will get you to get to the place, because you wear a uniform, that you will go do something that will get you killed by someone else, even though you don't want to be killed. You will still get out of a ditch and run across an open field while they're shooting at you to kill you because they told you to. It's amazing. It's remarkable. What a gift. Your aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted you. So whatever the metaphor is dealing with, remember, it's to satisfy the one who enlisted you. His war. And the athlete being crowned, you're doing it for his praise. Consequently, the rules should matter to you. You ever know somebody who cheated? I would never say any of you ever 
cheated at something. Roy and I used to argue for years, literally for years. We probably still will argue this with his brother Mark about cheating in sports. I am a man of honor. And the Connect twins, well, let's just say they hold the other position. That cheating is just, well, breaking the rules, that's just part of the rules. That's part of what you do. Now, you know that if you really actually did cheat, if you knew that you were running the Boston Marathon and you were getting onto a bus at whatever street and riding it for five miles and getting off and running the rest of the way, and they, no one knew about it, but there you were, beating the world record times for everything. And you went home with the trophy, and no one ever found out about it. You got the praise, but you know. It's not that you get praised, that whose praise you get. And you don't want praise that is based on ignorance. I used to, when I was a young artist, I had a studio in our basement in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and my mother would drag her friends down to see my stuff. Because what? She was my mom. Now, my mother was not an artist. She was a Canadian. And a missionary. Everything wrong with this picture, right? Didn't understand the arts, but it was her son. And he picked two pictures. And what happens when somebody that you is awarding you praise and you think, they don't really understand if I follow the rules or not. Mom's always going to like it. And her friends are always nodding. Oh, yeah, that's really nice. Here, an athlete being crowned matters, especially when you've kept the rules and you know that the crown mattered. And here, in this situation, you're assuming that the issuer of the crown, the praise is coming from him. You're fighting his war and want to please his enlistment. You're running some race, whatever that's going to come up to be in your efforts to think over what he says. Whatever you come up, it's for the praise of God. It's for the crown he gives. And the hardworking farmer Uh, some farmers. Um, it's not like they're functioning like the athlete is. That he's running really fast through his fields every day trying to get, you know, I'm really hard working so I should get the, is there a trophy for farming? No, there's not a trophy for farming. There's a harvest for farming. And that's what they care about. The breeding of their Livestock, the yield of the fields, what fruit they brought in. It's his harvest. And I want you to think about, because I want you to take verse 7 seriously and say, I'm supposed to think over what St. Paul said here to Timothy because I'm waiting to find out if I'm going to understand it. For the Lord will grant you understanding in everything. He did not tell you the understanding. All I'm trying to do is hand you a few extra pieces that says, okay, 
If it's a war, it's his war. If it's a contest, it's his praise. If it's a labor to produce a fruit, it's his harvest. Begin there. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, as preached in my gospel, the gospel for which I am suffering and wearing fetters like a criminal, but the word of God is not fettered. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus and its eternal glory. That's one of the most Elbows, my mother also didn't play basketball, but when she did, she cheated. We had a little basketball court in the back of her yard in Genesee Street in Annapolis, and, and she would get out there, elbows, go, I mean, you'd take it in the head from my mother, and she's five foot four, and, and she'd go up, not very high, because again, Canadian, but you know, she, the elbows would just come out like nobody's business. Why did I bring that up? There is, I know there was a reason I brought it up. Some kind of, uh, um, there's a, there's an element of tone of voice here. And that's probably, yeah, that, that, that my mother who'd never expected being competitive in basketball. Um, you, have got some things to do regarding this passage. One is to define what is the grace that you've received in Christ Jesus. What is, what is the main line before many witnesses apostolic teaching? Now, if you're Christians, you should, you should have figured this out. If I said, what is the Pauline thread? What is the Johannine thread? What is the Petrine thread? What, what are they teaching primarily? What is the main point of the book of Hebrews? What is the main point of the book of John? You're Christians. This is what we're about. We're figuring this out. We're thinking over these things because we know it matters. And this is about Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Then the way he says, risen from the dead, descended from David. He is, these are, you might say, to evoke a certain feeling about your Christ. It's victorious. It's sort of what you don't expect, like I didn't expect the elbows from my mother. You don't expect, even though he is suffering and wearing fetters like a criminal, he's in jail in Rome. He's going to die this time. That's what he expects. And he's still throwing elbows. He still has this as a measure of victory, the word of God is not fettered. I endure anything for the sake of the elect that they may obtain salvation in Christ Jesus. You get that sort of attitude when he's talking to Agrippa. And Agrippa says, in a short while you think to make me a Christian. And Paul, what does he say? Yeah, except for these chains. It was all that were like me, except for these chains. I mean, admittedly, being in jail is a problem. But I wish everyone were like me. Do we have this Christ? Do we have the grace? Do we know what the grace is? Do we know what the thread is of the things taught before many witnesses? 
Do I know what I'm going to do with those metaphors that I was just handed and told to think about? Do I know that this ain't going to keep going unless I keep going doing it? If, you know, if we hear Moscow, Idaho, edge of civilization, uh, not much further away from everything, small church, we all have friends to which we represent our faith, what our life is like, what our words are like, what we stress. They will know if we are satisfying to God, if we follow the rules, if we, we're getting the harvest. There's something, having looked at the war, the rules, and the work, it's about, it's about the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You don't want to ever leave the word Christ Jesus just as sort of the punctuation word verbiage at the end of an important thing called grace. You're looking at grace that is in Christ Jesus. So that he is risen from the dead, descended from David. I have this here on the side, Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is your Christ. So when it says the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that is the person that should jump to your mind. When you think, I am a soldier on active duty, and I, don't, I, I want to please he who enlisted me, it's his war. It's his rules and his praise. It's his harvest. I need to know who he is. And then he gives a little poem, or it's more like probably a hymn, an early Christian chorus. They probably had it on overhead projectors all over Palestine and the Roman world. The saying is sure, we have all died. If we have died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, just like with the metaphors, how many ways can you misunderstand that passage? I mean, you guys are imaginative. You could do these things. You can, you can figure out all the different ways we could. You mean you could lose your salvation? You already probably thought that one, right? If you deny him, if you deny, you've known believers, people that just sort of walked away from the Lord and said, I'm not a Christian anymore. And you start to have concerns, right? It says if you deny him, he will deny us. Faithless, but he remains faithful. But how can he deny us? If it's another situation like the metaphors. Think about this and remember the next verse. Remind them of this and charge them before the Lord to avoid disputing about words. It says don't get into that kind of fight about this.
Do you know what's on the surface? Hear this praise of God. We die with him, we live. If we endure, we reign. If we deny, we get denied. If we are faithless, God is still faithful. Now, there's something on the surface of that that is entirely, you know it, it's already true for you. But as you think more deeply, all that you run into is the things that you fight over with other believers. There's a different way of approaching this. There's a different way of approaching we're in a rational because that's who does it go back to? Thales uh, for Greek philosophy, Heraclitus, those guys. Down through the the Greek development of philosophy, and you get the big boys like Socrates and Aristotle, and and then the Roman world develops off of that, and on the heels of that comes the medieval world with its sudden discovery of Aristotle, and boom, Europe. And you combine the Germanic tribes with Aristotle, and you got a problem. And the whole world started to think in more Protestant terms, even before the Protestant Reformation. We became something where we think, we think that the most righteous right thing you can rightly propound is the right answer. The right statement, the right propositional claim. All right answers are good. I, I approve of them. But sometimes that, 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 that demand sitting in the back of our mind to settle this and be right about something, those metaphors back in verse 3 through 6, or this hymn in, in, in verses 11 through 13, um, we end up disputing about words, which does no good. It only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's, that's one of the most amazing bits of comedy in Christian history. That phrase, rightly handling the word of truth, used to be in the King James translated, rightly dividing the word of truth, which um, um, C.I. Schofield uh, misinterpreted and thought it meant actually dividing the Bible up into epochs. And so he actually divided the Bible rather than handled the Bible. So the fact that he could not, did not know how to handle the scriptures correctly made him come up with an interpretation of the verse about handling the scriptures correctly, incorrectly. It's amazing. Christians, I think he's gone to glory and I will meet him someday and he'll still probably have a blush because he'll be ashamed of what he did. Maybe not anymore. It's been a few years. But it tells you what you ought to be. The whole thing in this, since there are so many vagaries presented here, even the apostle is leaving it undefined, but he's pointing you in a certain direction. How frequent did I teach it to how many people? Did you think over this? Is it in Christ Jesus? Did it, did it decide to have disputes about words? It, or did it find a, what's called a hermeneutic? That's a, a word we could fight over. Uh, hermeneutic, a sense of getting the, getting the meaning out of the text. 
the right, there's a way of doing that's good. There's a way of it that's wrong. It certainly says that your relationship with other believers should not be disputing about words. Avoid such godless chatter. Got that? The thing that sounds like it's the most spiritual conversation since, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is a debate about words regarding, I don't know, pick something, the Trinity, substitutionary atonement, whatever it is, and fight. Fight like dogs, because that will mean how spiritual you are. How fight, how bloody you get. Did someone end up tied to a stake at the end? Because that's really important. You got to be sure you either convince them or hurt them. That's actually godless chatter. And the Christian church has been beset. Gunn was talking about last night uh, the, the book that C.S. Lewis was hoping to write but never would uh, on all the sins of the Christian church down through the ages. And this is this disobedience to avoid disputing about words and avoid such godless chatter. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness than that. You heard me say before, you had a Protestant army against a Protestant army in England in the 1600s shooting cannons at each other over church government, forms of church government, because that's a good enough reason to kill another believer. And it had gotten to that point. You don't think it can? And, the, and people look at the 1600s in England and think it was the, the glory time of Christianity. Because famous Christians lived there. You, well, these are the Christian pastors that were encouraging this kind of nonsense. Godless chatter. Their talk will eat its way like gangrene. Among them were Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth by holding that the resurrection is past already. Somebody in the first century was arguing that the resurrection from the dead had happened. They were wrong. But can you imagine? You've heard equally weird views. That's not the weirdness. Remember, everything we believe is weird. We believe that a dead Jewish carpenter is God. I mean, that's, you know, that's hard to get around to begin with. But they were holding something that was wrong, and it was because it was wrong, it was upsetting the faith of some. When we're wrong, we still go to battle as soldiers. We just fight the wrong wars because the dispute's still there, but it ruins the hearers. The chatter is still there. The talking about the issues is still there, but ungodliness and gangrene is what comes up. We cannot understand what we read in front of us we don't think on it long enough. We don't study it. We don't rightly handle the word of truth. Look at what the Lord said. Look at what... I was talking to someone recently about some of the teachings of the Lord regarding helping the poor. But it had become so much a thing that the person I was talking to didn't seem to have gotten past just that instruction like all of Christianity was answered by helping the poor. It's a good thing to do. There's a lot of other stuff. You're rightly handling the word of truth. You need to know the rule book of the game you're playing so that you can compete by the rules. Because you want the praise of the person who 
set that up. Well, our God is the one giving the praise, so our God needs to be understood. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. Now, this is where I wanted to stop this morning, because we're at the end of our time. And I think we don't think along the right axis, because as soon as we start misunderstanding the metaphors and start misunderstanding the hymn and start applying different definitions and start fighting over words, having this godless chatter... We divide up into groups by how many people are in the particular group that hold my viewpoint. And then the measure of success in Christianity is which group is biggest. Which pastor is paid more? Just saying. They should be paid a lot. But some people measure it that way. Some people measure it that way. I was amazed. We had a conversation on Puerto Rican Pool Boys Night on Tuesday. On they had been talking about um, pastoral remuneration. Now, this is not a sideways path into getting a paycheck. But some guy in South Carolina that Nico knew of was getting paid $175,000 a year as a pastor. And he didn't have any more days in his week. Same number of days, seven, I think there are. One Sunday each week, $175,000. Warmed my heart, I tell you. Struggled with covetousness for days. Actually, you know, we measure it all sorts of ways because we have in all sorts of ways disobeyed or failed to think over what he said and get the right answer from rightly handling the word of truth and build the wrong kind of Christianity and face a grace that is not the grace of God, face a Christ that is not the Christ, and fight with everybody else that is in Christ. Measure yourself differently. The measure is in red at the bottom of the page. Bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. You know, you really only have to be concerned with you, really. And does he know you are one of his? He said, well, I don't know. I know some people who don't, don't know if they're saved. Well, it's a sad state to be in. Sucks to be you. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. It's a measurement. If you do, if you claim it. He either knows you or he doesn't. He's going to say to some who claim it at the end, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And the opposite is also true, that those who have departed from iniquity are exactly what the people who named Jesus Christ would do. Anyone who names the name of the Lord, depart from iniquity. Depart, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you, is the opposite of this feeling. Do the, does the Lord know you? Do you live what you claim? If you are not living the righteous life, if holiness isn't your middle name, go back over the passage. Go back to think over what I say. Struggling to maintain, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Are you competing according to the rules? Are you laboring to get a first share? Do you know who Jesus Christ is? 
Do it in terms of your, I think I have it claimed, uh, the Lord knows you. And what's the last line? If you claim to be known, quit being so awful. Because as a pastor, I get to see awful. Quit it. Stop it. I can't. Well, then bow your knees before the living God and the grace of God. We'll take care of it, but let's thank him. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Carry us on through the next week with our thoughts, mulling over all the possibilities on these passages, that we think over these things looking to understand them, that we think on your son looking to know him and be known by him. Lord, keep us from fighting about words and submitting ourselves to your holiness. In your son's name we pray, amen.